Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Web3 Business Podcast, helping you navigate the future of business. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Web3 Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, I'm going to be joined by Thomas Pan, and we're going to explore Web3 business frameworks. And really what we're going to be doing is taking a look at really innovative NFT projects, how they are solving some of the big business problems that could apply to anyone who wants to do anything in the world of Web3. I think you're going to find today's interview absolutely fascinating, and I strongly encourage you to listen all the way to the end. By the way, I'm at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter and at Web3Examiner on Warpcast. And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss any of our future episodes and they get automatically downloaded into your podcast player. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top-tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Thomas Pan. Helping you to simplify your Web3 journey, here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Thomas Pan. If you don't know who Thomas is, you need to know he's also known as T-Pan, a Web3 consultant and industry analyst. He advises Web3 projects and is the founder of Web3 with T-Pan, a newsletter covering growth marketing strategies and frameworks for Web3. Thomas, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Mike, thanks for having me. Always good to be back. Excited to share some insights, observations, and examples in the Web3 space and industry. Always a fun time. You're one of the few people that's had a second appearance on the show, so I'm super stoked about that. Today, Thomas and I are going to explore innovative NFT projects and how they can form frameworks for future Web3 projects, whether they be for NFTs or not. And I'm really excited about what we're going to be talking about. Now, Thomas, 
this is a diverse audience. Many of the people that are listening are in the discovery phase. They're not as entrenched in the Web3 world as you are. What do you want to say to those who are maybe at the front end of their discovery as to why maybe they should embrace Web3? Definitely. Great question. And there's just so much going on in the world of emerging tech, Web3 or not. And of course, the popular topic is AI, but we're here to talk about Web3 and crypto and, and business use cases on that front. And with that said, I think one of the first things is it's okay. Take a deep breath. There's a lot going on as you enter, especially the discovery phase of this journey. And I'll say, and Mike, I imagine to a degree you would agree with this, that it's overwhelming at times. It doesn't matter how long you have been in this space. And I have been for a few years, but I still consider myself very early in the journey. So with that said, take that deep breath, really take the time to understand the basics read what the headlines are, see if you could find some other industry leaders or individuals or companies who have been in the space for a little while and who create thoughtful content, share thoughtful and insightful opinions and follow and read and observe the space. This takes time. And as you better gather that library, that encyclopedia of content, the people that you go to for those insights, start digging a little deeper in regards to what they're looking into. Maybe branch out a little bit more if they're talking about a particular topic or a particular company. And I think in regards to why you should consider or why businesses should consider embracing Web3, the way I like to put it is you don't have to integrate this type of technology. You don't have to feel like you need to incorporate some sort of new program using this technology into your stack or into your product. However, what's important to understand is this technology and its intention is to help enhance, enrich, and empower businesses and those respective capabilities. It doesn't have to be today. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. Where we're seeing a lot of existing businesses as well as sometimes the ones that catch more headlines, Web3 native businesses incorporating from the ground up this technology. So as you better understand, especially with existing companies today, how they're utilizing this technology, it provides a springboard. It provides a little bit more of a common thread and common ground to understand how you could take this technology and incorporate it in small ways, in big ways, this capability into your business, your product, your platform, your processes. As of this recording, I'm about a year, as, as of the date of this publication, I'm about a year and a half into the journey of doing this show. And I have been going to lots of conferences. I've been listening to lots of podcasts. I have been reading lots of newsletters, including yours, Thomas. And there has been rapid iteration in this space. And what's really intriguing and why I love doing this show is I get a chance to talk to a lot of project founders, but every once in a while, I get someone like yourself on the show who kind of is an analyst who can look at all these different things and find these common threads. And it is really, really intriguing. I kind of think of uh, Web3 as like Legos, right? You think about what can you do with a Lego? Well, we now know you can do almost anything with Legos, right? I mean, you can create science projects, you can create theme parks. I mean, you can do a lot with Legos. These are basic building blocks of technology that unlock things that were previously very difficult to do. And I've had plenty of other podcasts that explore that. But what I'm excited about, what we're going to talk about 
is first of all, my, you know, we'll get to my next question about some of the struggles that a lot of people are facing in this space. But when we start unlocking these frameworks that, uh, um, Thomas is going to be talking about here. I think it'll help people, whether they've been in the space as a DGen and they want to start their own project and maybe they've just been dabbling at the edges, or if they're actually seriously thinking about doing something, this is where I think listening to what we're going to talk about today is super important. So Thomas, there are a lot of challenges that a lot of projects are facing specifically with Web3 that maybe our audience is not aware of. What do you see from your perch as some of the biggest challenges that businesses face when it comes to Web3? Definitely. I think there's a near endless list of opportunities as well as challenges. And what I won't focus on are definitely very important as well. And I will call those out in case anyone's like, wait, what about this? What about that? So obviously UX, UI onboarding, super, super important, right? How do we make this technology and the applications of this technology just as easy as using a mobile app or using or, or playing a game on your phone? I think that is that high bar and that high standard. The other is obviously around education, which is related to UX to a degree and onboarding. But how do we educate the newbies? How do we educate the Web3 curious? How do we even educate those that are more experienced like yourself and myself? We still don't know everything. And it's a very complex world. So want to get that out of the way. Those are very important problems that are being addressed and solved to a degree by a lot of great people in the space. But what I want to focus more about today is more around the growth and marketing side of things. This pertains to my background. I've I've worked at and with startups from seed series A stage all the way to pre-IPO in my previous career in Web2 tech. And we see a lot of those parallels here today in Web3. One of those buckets is around awareness and acquisition. And if we had the same question two years ago, that was not a problem in the same way that it is today, right? Everyone was talking about Web3, NFTs, the next big project, Board API Club, and a million other projects and brands. However, what we realize now with some hindsight is that there wasn't a sustainability aspect to that awareness and acquisition. It was definitely, we don't know exactly how much, but it was definitely fueled significantly through hype, through the focus around potential financial windfall and profitability, buying and selling and probably flipping for a, a certain amount of money or crypto. And now when we think about awareness and acquisition, we still incorporate many of the similar tactics and strategies, but ideally with a lot more thoughtfulness, with a lot more depth in regards to what am I really getting for these efforts? Are the users or the community members or the wallets that are participating or joining this product or platform or brand, are they high quality? How do we measure that? How do we know that you know, they are actually deserving and will be a part of this community for the long term or at least medium term versus just in and out to have a transactional benefit, maybe for both sides, maybe just for the end user and then they're out. Which leads me to the second bucket and area of focus that I want to talk about today, retention right, and potentially reactivation. So that is the other side of the coin especially if you come out with a great marketing campaign or announcement, or maybe just something more novel, 
it's easier, not as easy as two years ago or even last year, to get that awareness and acquisition and maybe the foundations for a strong community. But how do you sustain that interest? How do you keep them coming back? How do you share with them and show them the value of potentially the promise of the roadmap of the sort of goals and mission of what you're focused on as a brand, as a company, as a platform, potentially with benefits? And how do you keep them realizing that this is for the long haul. You might have some short-term mutual win-wins, but that there's something more to be gained here. So definitely want to focus on those two buckets. They're complex. There's so much to dig in on that front and hopefully some helpful examples. And many of these playbooks are still being written today, just like how in any other industry, but especially with Web3, just because it's so emerging, These playbooks and their respective chapters, I always like to say playbook in the sense of a real book because there's so much happening and it's still being written, right? There's chapters, there's prologues, there's epilogues, there might be case studies, there might be specific concepts and and strategies being written about, but that will change and continue to be appended and added to over time. This book is just beginning. We're in the early innings here. You know, some of you that are listening and you hear awareness and acquisition, and then you hear retention, you might be thinking, well, that's the same problem that every business faces. It's true, but it's more complicated in the world of WAMP3. And typically the reason it's more complicated is because what you're selling people is something that is foreign to them, right? It's not like, like Thomas mentioned earlier, something that intimately people understand. Like back in the early days when Gary Vaynerchuk launched VFriends, I didn't know what it was, right? And I didn't understand it. And I had a chance to join and I didn't. Um, And it was a limited supply, right? So that awareness and acquisition struggle is still a struggle to this very day. And then of course the retention is kind of a novel concept in this world because generally speaking, once you buy something, that's the end of the transaction, typically with most products and services. But because this has got a big, vibrant resale marketplace, the idea of retaining and keeping your quote unquote, we can't use the word investors, but they kind of are investors, you know, the people that invested in the project, keeping them activated and retained is kind of a novel concept that normally is not the job of marketing. That is normally the job of like a sales team, right? Or it's normally the job of a customer support team, right? And this makes things complex, way more complex than typically launching, for example, a book or launching a product. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. Particularly around the retention piece, I think. Once you start growing significantly, and when you think about companies in the earlier stages, it's about getting business through the door, getting feet through the door and building that community. And that's very, very hard. However, once you hit a certain inflection point, let's say if it's an NFT collection, a 10,000 NFT collection, once you have a few thousand holders, the ideal goal and process should switch to a degree into how do I make sure those few thousand people are happy, they're promoting the brand, the collection, they're bought into the mission, and then getting more of those types of folks to join and then also stay. And then that pie grows larger over time in a very mutually beneficial way. The natural reality is that there is a certain amount of churn, right? For whatever reason, whether it's financial, emotional, maybe just not really as interested as 
you know, a, an individual is not as interested as they initially thought they were, they might leave for various reasons, whether it's good, best for them, or whether it's just more, hey, I wanted to make a quick buck or, you know, something else. So retention is extremely important as you get to a certain degree of saturation or get to a certain number of holders of community size, because those are the folks that start moving the needle. From a growth standpoint, when you think about startups and tech, retention as a company matures becomes the focus just because a one percentage point change in retention, let's say from an annual retention rate of, let's say, 50% to 51% makes more of an impact than getting a 1% change or impact in terms of your efficiency on the acquisition side, because ideally or or hypothetically, the audience size is much larger in terms of your existing audience, right? And your existing audience makes up of cohorts or groups of individuals that come from maybe years of marketing efforts. So it's important to realize that shift and how this is sort of like, it's sort of like a delicate balancing act, right? Depending where you are, depending at how large your community is and depending at what point you you are in the business growth cycle, you shift from maybe growth to growth and retention to maybe a little bit more retention. And we all sort of know that your happiest customers are going to be your biggest promoters. And we know that in Web3, your community is a very unique and powerful marketing channel, for lack of a better word. And oftentimes, some of the largest brands don't spend that much on marketing budget and sort of focus more on community and investing in that as that sort of avenue for promotion, marketing, um, creative proliferation as well, which in itself is marketing because they promote their work that might be complementary to the Web3 brand or project that they are a part of. Let's kind of talk about a little bit of your method and frameworks in general and why what we're about to talk about is so important. Definitely. So talking a little bit more about frameworks, the way of thinking, how to sort of identify what's going on in this space, which is a lot of what I do in my writing publicly and also just in my brain, a lot of the thinking. So really... I do want to share a little bit more of the mindset and my background as it pertains to this, because I do want to call out, you know, we all have our own professional and personal talents. And one thing I've realized over my career, and especially more recently being in Web3, is being able to identify certain themes, turning that into more of a framework and publicizing that to my audience and to hopefully other operators and practitioners in the Web3 space, but even outside, because if you can understand that this can be applied in different ways, especially so in this industry, but also even outside of it, this is where it gets interesting. I think a few frameworks about my process with frameworks, right? So so it sounds complicated, but I promise I'll simplify. One is pattern recognition, right? When we notice something, easy example, headline that a good number of us understand is, hey, Nike is starting to sell NFTs. They just launched publicly last week the Our Our Force One virtual sneaker collection, 106,453 pairs of digital virtual sneaker boxes, which will reveal sneakers. Hey, that's awesome, right? It's Nike. Pretty much, I imagine all of us have heard of Nike, maybe have some Nike apparel or sneakers. Great. Wait a second. 
There's also Starbucks. Starbucks is doing stuff in this space. Great. Another data point. Interesting. It's a little bit more of a loyalty play, but they're exploring Web3. I just discovered yesterday, Michelin has a Web3 initiative. The tire company. Also, Michelin of the Michelin restaurant guide and that sort of space on the tourism side. So I'm still digging into that. But interesting, a 100 plus year old brand also exploring Web3 in their own unique way. So this is a very simple and obvious example of pattern recognition that, hey, there are some Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 brands that are getting into the space. Oh, I forgot to mention on the note of tires, Mercedes-Benz actually last week announced some initiatives in regards to digital art, digital collectibles, generative art. Hmm. There's a pattern here. Again, this isn't like, oh my gosh, everyone's getting into Web3. I need to get into it tomorrow too. But you could, if you sort of tease apart the headlines or just put data points or headlines together, you start realizing that there's a theme going on here. And it's a little less in, in a good way, frenzied than last year or the year prior, right? Folks entering now, and this is tying in another theme, understanding when brands or when certain companies make certain initiatives and announce it. And the timing of that is another framework to consider. What are the motivations? What are the intentions? You know, what is the general context surrounding this? Well, it's not exactly the hot time for Web3, yet we just heard and I just shared some major brands that are actively and publicly announcing and exploring this space more deeply and probably in a slightly more committed way because they've taken the time. So that's one framework I sort of think about. How do you identify data points? And those data points may be great by themselves, but really identifying, okay, is this turning into a theme? Is there something else going on there? And evaluating each one by itself, but also evaluating these together as a unit or as a theme. So that's one of the things I think about. And if I see something there, I dig in a little bit more. Maybe there's a gold nugget, maybe there's not. And maybe that's something I need to put in my back pocket. And I think for the audience, at the end of the day, why is this valuable, right? So when you think about as a business owner, your business, your strategy, what's next? What should I prioritize? What should I deprioritize? What may be the new frontier to explore, to enhance or grow my business for the next quarter, the next fiscal year, et cetera? This is where there's an opportunity to understand how can there be additional technology, additional strategies and tactics to augment the business or invest in to augment the business in the next few months or few years. What I like about what we're about to talk about next is Thomas has done a really good job with kind of reverse engineering projects, not just the news once it's announced, but actually after they've successfully or unsuccessfully done their launch, right? And kind of looking at what were the pieces that were missing? What were the common pieces that were there? And what we're going to start with now as we're going to get into the meat of the matter is on the awareness and acquisition side. Let's explore some examples of how you feel Web3 businesses, and these aren't going to be businesses that are known to the Web3 world, but may not be known to those of you that are listening. As a matter of fact, I don't think any of these are going to be known to the traditional <laughs> business world, but there's lessons here, right? So let's explore some examples of some Web3 businesses and how they're solving the awareness and acquisition challenge. Definitely. 
And you bring up a great point, Mike. These aren't exactly brand names to the general public, but my goal here is to help educate and show how there are different strategies and tactics that can be applied, of course, and replicated to a degree in the Web3 context, but hopefully also in the Web2 context. And that's the other angle of why this space is so interesting. Because the space is so new, the industry is forced to, and in its nature, is more so this way, but is more creative with their approach to solve common business problems, regardless of the industry that you're in, awareness, acquisition, retention, product marketing, go-to-market, ideation, implementation of product, getting feedback, community building, etc. So on the awareness and acquisition side, we will start with a project and it's one of its founders, Frank. The project or projects is called D-Gods and Utes. So this company, the parent company is called Dust Labs. They have two collections currently. One is D-Gods, D-E-G-O-D-S, I guess short for Decentralized Gods, and Utes, Y-0-0-T-S. Don't ask exactly about the spelling and things like that. It is different, right? I'll just put it that way, but that's a little bit part of the culture and the space. We like to have fun too. And Mike, please pitch in if you do have any additional thoughts, because I know you are a holder and you experience aspects of this firsthand. So D-Gods and Utes started on Solana. So this is a prominent blockchain. Many, definitely not all, of the sort of Web3 NFT culture sits primarily on Ethereum, though I think that is a rapidly changing landscape. So I'm sure there are a healthy number of people that may disagree with that. But Ethereum is sort of the at least home base for much of this Web3 NFT culture. However, D-Gods and Utes started from Solana. And they, over the past year and a half or so, have become one of the most prominent Solana collections with a very strong community, legitimate and thoughtful roadmap, and many more plans down the road. On Christmas Day last year, Frank, who is one of the co-founders and one of the more public figures on the team, I believe he has probably close to 200,000 Twitter followers, Twitter being the primary sort of announcement and personality and social media channel of choice. We should also add that he's one of the most prominent outspoken people in the entire NFT world, right? Like, yeah, yeah. That's the other side of it. So not just is Frank one of the co-founders of D-Gods, he's also very popular speaker, very popular on Twitter, is often picked up in the press and by a lot of other podcasts. So he has done a really good job of building his personal brand and many people think he's like the next Gary Vaynerchuk. So just to give my audience a little context, because they're all going to know who Gary V is. So that's just a little more context on who he is. So what did he do on Christmas? Yeah. And also last thing to mention, and this is sort of interesting and gives more context to the audience. He's in his early mid 20s. Right. This is the next generation of Gen Z tech entrepreneur, right? They're public. They have a large social following. They're not afraid to be a little controversial, not like anything scandalous. Don't get me wrong. But not afraid to make fun of himself publicly, mind you, hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers, probably, you know, on the stage as well. Yes, all, you know, doing the conference circuit, the tour circuit, professional conferences to, you know, slightly more industry specific Web3 conferences. He's known for always wearing sunglasses indoors, outdoors, doesn't matter. He has a deep 
baritone voice, maybe bass-like voice. I don't know what he sounds like when he sings. But, you know, very uh, and personable. And he's been in the space for a while. He's been since the earlier days of Bitcoin. And, you know, I think NFTs was when he really realized, like, this is my space. Let me build within it. And yeah, he, he was building ever since college. He had startups, you know, even when he was in college, things like that. Just a builder by nature. And so on Christmas, so back to Christmas, the announcement was D-Gods was migrating to Ethereum. Utes was migrating to Polygon. Big news. Some people were super excited. Some people less excited. At the end of the day, it was a business opportunity long term. And the, the team and the company decided to migrate the collections over. Migrating anything, it doesn't matter about blockchain or crypto or NFTs, just migrating anything, even just a personal definition of migration, moving, right? Even if you have to move locally from one apartment to a house or one place to another is a huge effort. And that's even more so from a technical and technological standpoint on the blockchain. So that's an important point. Migrating is a big decision. Oftentimes it's irreversible to a degree, not literally, but is it worth it to ever move back if you make this type of decision? It needs to be very thoughtful, takes months likely of planning and a lot of communication. So this was announced on Christmas. This actually happened several months later, much more recently. And as I mentioned, these two collections were on the Solana blockchain and they each respectively migrated to a different blockchain with the core blockchain being Ethereum because Polygon's based on that, but two different blockchains, Ethereum for D-Gods and Polygon for Utes. So what they did here was a thoughtful approach to encourage, and what I, to, what I like to say is with the carrot and the stick, with incentives and with indirect punishments to make sure as many of the holders and as much of the collection was migrated over efficiently and thoughtfully and with some support, of course, from the team and partners. So as an example, some of the incentives were if you migrated and let's say you decided to sell your D-God or Ute for whatever reason it might be, there were some incentives. There weren't listing fees, as an example, things like that. And there was maybe a small promotional incentive in crypto to encourage that. From a stick standpoint, if you did not migrate your NFT over within a certain allotted time, there was a quote-unquote tax associated with it. And it was a hefty one. Typically, royalties are anywhere between, you know, sometimes zero, depending, all the way to probably 10% on the secondary market. After a certain amount of time, they increased it to 33.3%, which is a ton, no matter what way you look at it. So that was the stick method. If you did not migrate your D-God or Ute over. Mike, do you have any thoughts about this before we get more into that awareness acquisition? Yeah, just a couple more before we go into another example. Uh, they did incentivize everybody to move in the first 72 hours to win a free ordinal NFT from one of their D-Gods that they had switched over to the Bitcoin ordinal, which I think they got like 66% moved over in the first 72 hours. And then you can still keep your old NFT on Solana, but the problem is if you sell it, 
they have this tax, right, where they can control it. So most people have moved over. And the reason they did it is because they knew that they wanted to attract a larger investment pool because most of the big projects, almost all the big projects live on the Ethereum ecosystem, not on the Solana ecosystem. And by doing this, they knew that they would essentially be able to compete with the bigger players like the Board Ape Yacht Club. So that's all I've got to add to that. Do you want to go to your next example? Yeah, and I, I do want to wrap up in regards to the awareness and acquisition piece, because this was more of like a go to market activation, get the community to to be aligned and participate in a business strategy sort of move, right? To your point, larger audience, arguably more liquidity. I think there actually is, right? And there are stronger communities in general there. And there were some other incentives involved. So building a strong community higher likelihood of a stronger business. But I think what I found very interesting that people did call out, but I, I, I don't believe really quite called out in my way from an awareness and acquisition standpoint, the question turns into, let's say, for a board API club holder, or just someone who's been in the Ethereum ecosystem for some time, who the hell is Frank? Maybe they know who Frank is actually, but maybe they're like, why are D-Gods and Utes doing this? Eh, like they're on Solana. I don't really care as much. Like, Cool. They could do whatever they want, of course. And maybe eventually I'll, I'll be more interested in what they're doing. So one thing that Frank did, and I think to a degree it was planned and not necessarily scheming per se, but I, I do think it was to a degree planned. I do also think to a degree it was a very smart move. The way to think about this is Frank is a new kid on the block or Frank is the new neighbor that moved into the neighborhood. And I think he and the team realized this, and Frank obviously being the largest and most public figure on the team as a co-founder, he did something pretty interesting because of the way he did it and how he went about it and to the degree he did it. Soon after all those announcements and moves, he actually purchased over a dozen NFTs from some of the most prominent projects in the Ethereum NFT ecosystem. So Board Ape Yacht Club, to Azuki, Valhalla, Cryptodes, etc. He actually, there were people who asked him multiple times, like, why did you not buy a CryptoPunk? Why did you buy a Board Ape instead of a CryptoPunk? And his logic was, first of all, he wants a CryptoPunk. I mean, who doesn't? But also the logic was because Board Ape Yacht Club will likely over time continue to airdrop and provide benefits where then he could either sell or the value can accumulate and they could sell at a later point in time and use those proceeds to acquire a CryptoPunk, which I think was pretty good logic. We'll see exactly what happens or maybe he just decides to get one. But going back to the point, what he did here, of course, getting a ton of engagement, getting even more eyeballs from an awareness and potentially acquisition standpoint, was as that new neighbor, he was going to each of the new, each of the existing neighbors on that Ethereum block of houses and properties and being, hi, my name's Frank. You know, I'm the CEO or co-founder of Utes and D-Gods. I'm here on the Ethereum block. Nice to meet you. Just want to learn more about your community, see how you guys grow, how you guys build community, but also want to show goodwill and just buy one of your NFTs because I want to be to a degree at least involved and aware of what's going on your ecosystem, your, your community on Ethereum. So that's one very interesting tactic on the awareness and acquisition side, right? So bringing this all the way back, right? Regardless, Web3, Web2, Take your time to understand the ecosystem that you're joining or you are already a part of. Know who your neighbors are, right? For me, 
a lot of folks in the Ethereum ecosystem, I want to understand what's going on, having the conversations online, offline, in person, things like that. And Frank has a great example of doing that with DGods and Utes migrating to Ethereum and Polygon. Okay, so I know we had two examples. I don't know how fast we can get through them, but if you want to try to squeeze through these next two before we get to the retention and activation side of things, possibly. Definitely. Or just choose one of them, or just choose one. I'll, I'll, I'll let you decide. Yeah, there's one more on the awareness and acquisition front, and we'll move over to retention. So Jack Butcher of Checks Fame, the TLDR here is Jack Butcher is has been a very well-respected and I think uh, internet famous at minimum um, visual designer for some time. Humble Beginnings really sort of grew his own brand and started getting more interested in the Web3 ecosystem because it's one that's rich in culture, supporting creators, digital art, a lot more flexibility as well with what you can do as a creator in the Web3 space. And his first collection was Checks. Uh, an on-chain art project that sort of came off of this sort of Twitter verification sort of headlines back in the day where you had to get Twitter blue, what does it mean to be verified anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And that has gone very well. Actually, very recently, last week, some of his work related to that collection went on to Christie's, the renowned auction house, and there's much more to come there. But what I want to focus on is his second collection, Opepin, a collection of 16,000 profile picture-esque NFT collection. You can argue that it's very much digital art. You can also argue that it is a profile picture collection NFT related. And what I want to talk about here in relation to awareness and acquisition is what Jack Butcher has done with what I will say the canvas for this collection. So to start off with Opepin, it's a silhouette of a character, uh, for lack of a better word, or sort of profile picture silhouette that Jack Butcher created. And this was an open edition at the time, basically for a period of time until Jack decided to conclude the mint. Anyone could mint as many of these as they wanted. And this is a sort of meta or a popular theme earlier this year, 2023. And What Jack did was very mysterious much of the time, but even as he was building and planning for this collection and what it will be over time is he updated the metadata, which is something you can do with these collections and sort of the flexibility and the dynamicism of what you can do here. So he updated the the silhouettes to give a sneak peek of what could be done with a canvas here. Right. So he changed the medium. He changed what showed up on the canvas. But the canvas was always the silhouette of this Opepin collection. Right. And he filled in those silhouette blanks to show what could be possible. So what gets interesting here? I think approximately about a month ago, and there's been constant updates because this sort of framework has been built out for what Opepin will be. Again, part PFP project, part artistic expression and showing that how dynamic art can be on this unique canvas was um, he set these guidelines. So what Opepin is going to be moving forward now is, first of all, 16,000 unique NFTs within this collection. It is going to be split into 200 sets of 80. So if you multiply 200 by 80, you get 16,000 NFTs in the collection. 
what is he going to do with these 200 sets? I'll sort of gloss over the 80 per set for now. Jack Butcher and his team is using each set and they're released more or less one or two at a time so far. We're only on set four. Is he is using each set of these 200 as a different sub collection is probably one way to call it, right? It's called a set, but let's just say sub collection. So lots of small mini collections under this larger collection. And in it could be art from himself and his team, visualized value, or it could be art from other creators. It could be themed art from other collections and things like that. So why does this get very interesting in on the note of awareness and acquisition? Wait, real quick, just to get clarification on this. So I think what I'm hearing you say is he's released some very basic art right now that's going to get replaced by something and nobody really knows that it's going to get replaced by. Is that really what I'm hearing you say? Is like, yes. It's like you don't even know if you're part of a collection yet. Right. So you don't know if one of the ones you got, which I'm assuming were really inexpensive. I don't know how expensive they were, but initially now it's getting close to almost it's at least as of today, like 0 0.9 ETH. Okay. Or just a blank one, which 0 is 0.9 ETH. So it's almost a full ETH, right? So you don't really know what you're going to get and you don't know which collection you're going to be part of. But what they're going to do is essentially update the art and it could be something really valuable. I just wanted people to kind of understand what I think I'm hearing you say. Is that accurate? If so, then keep going. Yes. Okay. Yes. In terms of high level summary, yes, that's correct. Right. And we're only on four out of 200. So this is what gets very interesting. So in regards to uh, the rules and guidelines that Jack Butcher has set for something to be approved and revealed, the community needs to get involved, as in the holders of this collection. So what happens, it's every few weeks right now, but it might happen more consistently on a weekly basis moving forward. We'll see. This is still very early. Details are being ironed out. Is Jack Butcher and his team reveals the next set. So for example, we next the next set that would be revealed would be 005 or the fifth set. And in order for that to be approved and published, so to say, and that to be applied randomly to the winners of this raffle is the collection needs to have at least 200% opt-in or basically enough people to vote that they want this collection to go live and be published or the metadata to be published on those random lucky winners. So what we're seeing here is this constant level of engagement for the holders, awareness in the form of multiple ways. One, each new set will probably have a different theme. And if there's another collaborating artist, they're going to promote what the, the fact that they are a part of this, probably what's going to be a renowned collection over the next several weeks, months, years. And then the community starts getting excited because it might be an artist that they want. Maybe it's just the fact that the next release was out. And then that cycle continues, as well as the Opepin brand being elevated. So I think the key takeaways here from an awareness an acquisition standpoint is that this is sort of an engine from a marketing awareness and potentially getting more people to come in that sort of perpetuates over time, right? And this is an easy opt-in for the community of holders for Opepin existing. Uh, maybe they already hold a, a revealed Opepin or they have these sort of unrevealed Opepin. There's still incentivization for the whole community and also the different types 
of NFTs in the collection revealed or unrevealed. So we see this happening over time and that multiplies as more collections are revealed, proposed, passed, and then the lucky winners of each collection or sub-collection sort of realize that they won. So this is a very interesting collaborative approach with the community. Very hard to do, but over time is something that really builds and accrues value and goodwill. Well, and this is a little bit of a, maybe overlap with the next question because part of this is a retention play too, right? Because people want to hold on to those unrevealed Opepin to kind of see if they're going to be part of something super valuable hypothetically. So let's talk about the example of retention and reactivation. I believe your example is going to be rug radio stubs. Just to kind of set this up, rug radio, we're going to be getting Farouk, who's the founder of rug radio on this show. And Rug Radio is uh, almost daily space on Twitter, and they've got a whole bunch of different shows that they do, including a podcast. So with that setup, why don't you tell us a little bit about what they're doing to retain the audience that is invested in their NFT project? Definitely a big fan of Rug Radio and Farouk. I still have their first POAP. I think it was like September 17, 2021 when they did that as a thing. So don't think it's worth anything, but it's a nice little souvenir, which is the point of many NFTs and POAPs for the record. But yeah, great folks, excited to have you. You have them on the slate. So one thing that the Rug Radio brand and company introduced maybe about a month, month and a half ago was the Stubbs program. And this is a very interesting example of retention and reactivation. And we've seen different flavors of this. This isn't something completely revolutionary on its own. I think a lot of different media brands or let's say daily morning and you know morning Twitter space shows or even podcasts and blogs and things like that do incorporate versions of this. But I did find Rug Radios particularly interesting because of the the system, more or less. So when they introduce this, and I think it will grow significantly over time, the longer it goes. Same, just like with Opepin, I think the same with the sort of Stubbs program. The longer it goes, the more significance and traction it will get. But every Monday on Rug Radio Show, they introduce the new artist of the program. And what this involves is every Monday to Friday in the morning show, listeners are surprised with a special code. This code can be applied to the Rug Radio Stubbs minting activity on fair.xyz. They put in the special code. They need to be a holder of one of several NFTs in the Rug Radio ecosystem to qualify. And that's a big, that's a big caveat, right? They need to already be involved with the community and ecosystem in some sort of way. And as long as they hit those criteria, they get the special code and they are able to mint one of these tickets, right? So up to five per week, Monday to Friday. And as I mentioned, there is an artist every single week. And they create a special custom piece for the Stubbs program. And that is announced Friday, every weekend. And it's able to be minted for approximately 48 hours, I believe, over the weekend, using and burning and redeeming these Rug Radio Stubbs passes. So Artisan is announced on Monday. From Monday to Friday, the listener, as long as they find the code every single day or listen in to find the code every Monday to Friday, every weekday, are able to collect these mint passes. On Friday, the artist announces and releases to be minted their work. And then the listener or the community member is able to mint 
over the weekend for that special limited edition art piece. So these are some of the more, what I like to say, static and foundational guidelines and guardrails of the program, right? The, the timing, one stubs pass every day, a limited amount per day too. Right now it's 100, that number might change. Um, it's free to mint, but you need to be engaged. You need to hold an NFT from the ecosystem, all those things. And then the weekend is when you mint. What gets interesting here is there's still this, there are several different factors, mostly up to the artist to actually play around with. So for example, what the artist can do is they could release multiple versions of that artwork. So they could have one piece of artwork, let's say it costs two stubs to burn and redeem for. Then there may be a special edition of that artwork. Maybe it's animated versus static. Maybe it's a completely different piece that's just cooler. And that might cost more stubs to burn and redeem. That's really cool. Does that mean you can store up your stubs, if you will, and not necessarily redeem them that week? Exactly. So Mike, you're getting that, right? So I'll get into the gamification on the user side because there's a a sense of choice and sort of ownership and empowerment of what you want to do. You don't have to do this, right? These You don't have to participate on any given week. I, for example, could have 100 stubs. I could just wait and just get more stubs, buy more stubs on secondaries. You don't have to necessarily listen to, right? Ideally, you do, right? But you could just buy these on secondary for uh, they're they're like maybe like 10 to 15 bucks a pop right now, if I recall correctly. So, you know, less than 0.01 ETH. And you could just buy 100 if you want. Right. And just wait for a very famous artist in the digital Web3 space like Xcopy maybe one day will be on it. It costs 100 stubs to redeem and boom, you got 100. But as you can see, already alluding to it, there's a lot of different interesting mechanics for the artist right? They could choose what they want to create in partnership with the Stubbs uh, program. Um, They could have multiple, they could just do one. They determine the price of the Stubbs. I think there's probably, they work with the team and they're like, hey, it probably shouldn't cost 10 Stubbs because that's a little expensive. You probably won't have that many minted. We want to support and promote you, but maybe there might be one more popular or general public piece for a couple Stubbs. There might be a rarer one for five, right? There definitely have been several that cost five or around that range. So that's the artist side, right? That, that's pretty interesting. On the community member or the listener side, as I mentioned, you can either engage and listen and mint a free stub, just cost gas every day. You can buy more on secondary if you're short and you really want to mint the, the piece of the week or the pieces of the week. You can choose to mint the piece of the week multiple times, right? So maybe you really want more than one. Well, you can do that. And you can buy those pieces on secondary. If you join the program late, you want to get the very first one that Rug Radio ever ever partnered with, with an artist called GDR, for example, etc. So there's agency and ownership on the community member and listener side too. And then for Rug Radio, and this is something I, I sort of mentioned as an idea, and maybe it's in partnership with a specific artist or the artist needs to agree to this, is they could create more parameters. So as an example, maybe there's a special Stubbs Mint on a future weekend where they collaborate with a previous artist that already participated in the program, but those that have minted Stubbs art in the past can only qualify. And maybe you need three pieces from that. You could purchase on secondary, but you need to already have been engaged to engage in this new special edition mint, which maybe costs 
10 stubs. So there's a lot of interesting ways that this retention program can evolve over time. And it's interesting because there's three parties involved, right? Typically, when you think about loyalty programs, you have the brand and you have the individual. Over here, we see three parties, the new one being the artist that also creates parameters that makes it fresh from the art, from how the mint might work in terms of cost, the type of art, et cetera. And also the creator or the brand, in this case, Rug Radio, is leaning in more because they're curating the artists and the artist lineup. They might create future examples or requirements of what is needed to qualify. And the individual can also engage, but also engage more deeply and opt in on different levels beyond just, I need to listen in. Maybe you want to go on secondary for whatever reason. So this is an example of a new type of retention program that's probably going to happen and show up in different ways. And I know for a fact that the big brands, some of which I mentioned, are thinking along these lines. It's not going to be exactly the same, but collaborating with artists, I know for a fact, is going to be a thing. I won't go into detail. Dynamic utility or dynamic requirements to qualify for a specific benefit are going to be a thing. And that happens in Web2, to be clear, right? This isn't completely reinventing the wheel. This is creating a wheel with maybe different rims, or maybe the wheel is four-wheel drive, right? Or maybe not the wheel, but the wheel is, is more all-terrain versus just, you know, for streets. So this is what gets interesting when you think about Web3 and retention and loyalty. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Thomas, for laying these things out. If anyone who's listening thinks what I think, you know, there's just kind of these endless possibilities really of, uh, you know, it's just limited to your creativity. Like I said, I'm going to be getting one of the founders of fair.xyz on the show, FYI, down the road. And we'll talk about what they make possible as a platform to do some of these cool marketing things that uh, Rug Radio is doing. Thomas, I know we've just scratched the surface of the kinds of things you write about every week. Where can people discover more about you? And if they want to interact with you on the socials, where do you want to send them? Check out more of my work if you're looking for more examples, frameworks, growth and marketing within Web3 strategies. I have a substack at tpan, T-P-A-N dot substack dot com. If you want to reach out to me, feel free to reach out on Twitter or LinkedIn. My Twitter handle is tpan underscore Web3. And LinkedIn, just search my full name. I have a smiling face. Happy to respond to any questions, thoughts, or feedback, or any conversation about the space. So yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Awesome. Thomas Pan, thank you so much for really making this clear, crystal clear for all of us. We're way better because of it. Appreciate it. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash W78. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us on your podcast app. And would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter and at Web3Examiner on Warpcast. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Web3 Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world. The Web3 Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. The information provided in the Web3 Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. 
Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.